If you would this morning turn in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We'll be starting to read at verse 5. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. Thy Father, which seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions, as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not ye therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth what things ye have need of, before ye ask him. After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on this text. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning. We ask you as your people that you would bless this time, bless this study of your word. We pray that you would apply it to our lives and help us to grow in our devotion to you, Lord, through the means of grace that you have ordained as prayer. We thank you for this time and we seek to glorify you through it all. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So as we're taking a break from Hebrews this morning, we're looking at the subject of prayer. But as we've been studying in Hebrews, prayer is not totally disconnected from what we've been learning in Hebrews. In Hebrews 13, we've been learning things like endurance and persevering in the faith. We saw a few weeks ago that marriage is a means of persevering to the end. We saw that finances are to be used for that means as well, to persevere to the end. And like we'll see, it's mentioned later in that chapter that prayer is indeed a means to persevering to the end. So that's what we're going to be doing today, especially. But we're going to be looking at this over the next few months or so, once a month maybe, and looking at our study of the Lord's Prayer. So we're, today specifically, we're going, to start, we're going to look at the subject of prayer, kind of lay the groundwork for our coming study. So we're going to see the definition of prayer. We're going to look further at vain prayer that Jesus talks about, what that looks like. And we're also going to look at the necessity of prayer in the life of the believer. And of course, as we come to the subject of prayer, we all have our presuppositions of what prayer is, what we think prayer is. And so we have to kind of clear out what we think it is and to come back to the scriptures to truly understand what the scripture teaches about prayer. We can kind of look at the broader evangelicalism and see these different approaches to prayer that tend to be less reverent. You kind of get this idea of God being a kind old man sitting on his rocker in the back porch just imparting his wisdom that he's learned over the years. And so we tend to approach him in a less than reverent way. 
We also see this when we look at Jesus, that he can tend to be viewed as our buddy, as our friend, as a guy who, you know, you just approach and ask questions just for fun. And so this takes away the reverence that is due to our Lord Jesus Christ. In an attempt to swing away from that extreme of irreverence, we can tend to swing the pendulum too far. We can tend to look at God as while we see him holy and just and righteous, we can tend to start to view him as ominous and a distant judge that's just sitting there with the lightning bolt in his hand ready to strike you down the minute you sin. But that's the opposite extreme. It's a sinful extreme as well. It can tend to make us timid or even fearful in approaching the Lord in prayer. And in some cases, if we solidify this view of a terrible God in our minds, it can drive away prayer altogether. And of course, that is the farthest thing from Scripture that we see taught by the Lord. In order to see prayer as a true means of grace for the life of the believer, we need to look at it biblically and have a balanced definition of what prayer is. So that's what we're going to be establishing today. In establishing this definition for prayer, we're going to break it out in two sections. What I'm calling the textbook definition of prayer is going to be looking at the facts of prayer, what the scripture says, and what the idea of prayer is in general. And then we're also going to be looking at the experiential definition of prayer, what Christian prayer is to the believer as a means of grace. We're going to be looking at that as well. So first starting out in our textbook definition. If you do a simple web search, you'll find a dictionary definition, such as the Merriam-Webster Dictionary outlines prayer as this. An address, such as a petition, to God or a God in word or thought. So you've got this basic ground zero definition of what prayer is. An address to a deity, a higher being, is what the world kind of sees as prayer. And we look at this in the majority of the world religions. There are plenty of other sects and smaller things that we could look at, but we have time now to look at the major world religions, just an encapsulation of what the world views prayer as. Looking at Catholicism, probably the closest, one of the closest in relation to how we would approach prayer, but they say this, prayer is conversation with the invisible, this is where it gets weird with Catholicism, the invisible world of God, the angels, and the saints. So yes, we see their theology coming in here of praying to saints and things, but we see the basic definition underlying it all. We look at Islam. They have a very strict approach to prayer as well. They say this, their prayer, the Arabic word for prayer is salah. Literally, it means supplication or glorification. So we're looking at this idea that prayer is offering things to God and glorifying things to God, or glorifying their God, their almighty Allah. We see the same thing in Judaism, another close parallel to what we would believe that prayer is in and of itself. It says this, to pray means to beg, beseech, implore, and the like. So we see there's that basic, basic definition. From one of their rabbis, he says this, We're told to offer up prayers to God in order to establish firmly the true principle that God takes notice of our ways, that he can make them successful if we serve him, or disastrous if we disobey him. That success and failure are not the result of chance or accident. So again, we see this theology coming along with their definition of prayer, of some sort of works righteousness, that when they do good things, God will bless them, and when they don't do good things, God will hurt them, essentially. But, again, coming back to the basic definition, it's there. This is how they view prayer as well. Getting into the less formal religions, 
at least less formalized religions, we see Hinduism as an example. They have so an importance with prayer, but of course they have multiple different gods and multiple different venues by which this prayer is expressed. They say this, With intense humility unto God, pleading with yearning for a desired aspect is termed as prayer. So again, you kind of get that basic definition. A prayer includes respect, love, pleading, and faith. A prayer expresses the helplessness of the devotee and his state of surrender, humility, as we'll see, is an aspect of Christian prayer, and he keeps offering his doership to God. Now, again, you've got this big theology of works coming in, with Hinduism especially, but the basic definition of prayer is there. Buddhism, for example, our, our last world religion example, they say this, in Buddhism, we pray to Buddhas and Bodhavistas, I haven't figured out how to pronounce that yet, for the inspiration and strength to work on ourselves so that we can create our own causes of happiness as well as benefit others as much as possible. So again, with each of these, you see their works-based righteousness theology coming alongside prayer. However, that basic definition that prayer is an address to a deity is there in each and every world religion. Like I mentioned, that's not counting countless tribal religions. That's not counting ancestral worship that we find all over the world. And that's not even counting nature worship that we're finding more and more. That's just looking at the basic definition of prayer according to the world's major religions. Now let's look at Christian prayer. There's distinctions here. We want to look at the proper definition and establish it in Scripture. Right now we're just looking at the basic factual textbook definition. As we get into the definition of Christian prayer, we're going to be looking at scriptures, and each, as we look at each scripture, it will establish another layer to our definition of prayer. So the first basic tenet of our prayer. Look over at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 8. It may be on the same page, maybe flip one over. Chapter 7, verse 7 through 8. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. So again, let's look at the basic definition of prayer, an address to a deity, in our case, the one true God. And yes, that basic tenet is there. We see that in scripture for our own prayer, for Christian prayer. The distinction already starts to come in right here. Yes, we have the basic tenet of asking God things. But alongside that is the fact that God promises fulfillment of our prayers. And that will be further clarified as we go, but that's already a distinction there. All of the other world religions, we'll look at this more in depth later, are seeking to convince God, to bring things to their God, and are not confident that it will be answered. That's a big difference here. Secondly, Turn to Matthew 21, verse 22, a few chapters over. Matthew 21, 22. The next layer will be added to our definition here. Chapter 21, yeah, verse 22. And all things, whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. So this is the second layer added here. 
not only are we to ask things of God, not only does God initially promise fulfillment, but the condition of, our, of that fulfillment is that we come to the Lord believing that he is able to do this. That this is what he says. This is something we are to come and approach him believing that he will fulfill our prayers. Again, you can't make that a blatant statement and it will be further clarified as we go and continue to establish our definition. But this is a basic approach to prayer that qualifies that fulfillment. Moving on to the third layer. Philippians 4, verse 6. Turn over there with me, if you can. Philippians 4, verse 6. Philippians 4, chapter, or chapter 4, verse 6. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So here we've got the basic definition of asking God, petitioning to God for things. But we have another qualification, adding thanksgiving, having a heart of thanksgiving in our approach to God in prayer. So what are we to thank God for? Well, when we come to the Lord in prayer, the fact that we're alive today is something to be thankful for in and of itself. We have innumerable blessings to be thankful for. How can we not thank God in our prayers? He's uh, such a blessed, good God, and he demands our thanksgiving, which shouldn't be hard to acknowledge. In addition to that, we can give him thanks for the many answered prayers already. It's not like we're starting off a of ground one and nothing's been answered. So that in and of itself can be something worth giving thanks for as well. And thanksgiving is a vital aspect of our prayer. We see this outlined here. And that's the third layer to our definition of prayer. Not only do we have petitioning, we have believing that God will fulfill our prayers. And thanksgiving is the third layer added to that. One more layer. The fourth layer being given, look at John 14, verse 13. John chapter 14, verse 13. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So this fourth layer being given is not only are we to ask, petition the Lord for these things, not only are we to believe that he will fulfill them, not only are we to come to him in thanksgiving, but we are to come to him in the name of the Son for the purpose of God being glorified. That's the overarching theme here, that God's glory would be sought when we approach the Lord in prayer. So that's starkly different than many of the other world religions. You have this form of glory being given to their God in prayer. But take Catholicism, for example. Glory goes not only to God, but the one who prays, the saints, the angels it mentioned, and numerous other things. But this Christian prayer is to give God the glory alone. By that fact, we see that we're to pray for things, as our next layer will outline, our final layer to Christian prayer, is that it is to be for the glory of God, not for ourselves. Not, no, nothing to be spent on ourselves purely for our own enjoyment and sinful lusts most of the time. It is to be, we'll go ahead and go there, for the will of God, 
according to the will of God, excuse me, for the glory of God. So turn to last one, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. 1 John 5, 14. This fifth and final layer we're adding to our definition of prayer is this. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. So that's the icing on the cake. That's the last layer, the qualification by which we can come to the Lord, believing that he will fulfill what he promises. Not only are we to seek things that put forth the glory of God and demonstrate his glory, but are to be according to his will. So if we're saying some, if we're petitioning the Lord and are asking for something that glorifies our flesh and yet cloaking it in false piety, that it is for the glory of God, God doesn't hear your prayers. And we will get to that further with more qualification there. But ultimately... The biggest distinction between Christian prayer and worldly prayer, while we have the same basic tenet, is that it is to be for the will of God, according to his will, the things that he's revealed in his word, for his glory alone, not for us, not for the betterment of mankind specifically, but for God's glory alone, and to be given with thanksgiving. So before we finish our textbook definition that we've just worked through here, we want to turn our attention to the witness of church history. We see this in a couple different examples. Many books on prayer have been written by the Puritans. You can go back. The one I used as a source was William Perkins. He had this blessed chapter on prayer specifically. It was very encouraging, very edifying. But we can look at our own works that we find here in the Pillars of Truth that we put together. The Baptist Catechism, which was written at the end of the 17th century for the families of the particular Baptist churches, and it talks about prayer. Question 105 says this, what is prayer? They're trying to establish the definition of prayer like we just did. The answer is this, prayer is an offering up our desires to God by the assistance of the Holy Spirit for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ, believing with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. So like we just laid out, we mined through the scriptures, found a few uh, scriptures to establish our definition. The scripture's full of prayer, by the way, in case you didn't notice that. But we see this testimony of the truth of what prayer is established throughout church history as well. We're not alone in this. We're not on an island trying to discover this for ourselves. Yes, the scriptures are sufficient to establish the definition of prayer, but we can validate our position that we found in scripture by the testimony of church history. Looking again, we see the Orthodox Catechism, a larger catechism for the particular Baptists, but it reiterates the same thing. And it's question 135. It says this, What is required unto that prayer which shall please God and be heard of him? So they're asking the same question. What is essential to this prayer that will be heard of God? They say this, That we ask of the only true God, who hath manifested himself in his word, all things which he hath commanded to be asked of him, with a true affection and desire of our heart, that specification we'll get to in the experiential definition in a moment, and through an inward feeling of our need and misery, we cast ourselves down prostrate in the presence of his divine majesty, and build ourselves on this sure foundation, that we, though unworthy, yet for Christ's sake, 
are certainly heard of God, even as he hath promised us in his word. So as we sought to establish the definition of Christian prayer, this testimony, this definition, is testified to as true throughout church history. And we can rest that rest assured that our definition is accurate and biblical. So this is the summation of our definition, our textbook definition of what Christian prayer is. Christian prayer is an offering up to God our requests in the name of the Son of God with a conscious belief in the promise of fulfillment through Jesus the Mediator according to the will of God alone and for the glory of God alone. So that summarizes what we sought to establish in the scriptures for our textbook definition of Christian prayer. Moving on then to establish the second pillar of Christian prayer as being experiential prayer. So why do we have to make this qualification? Not only is the textbook definition different from world religions prayers, but this is the vital aspect to Christian prayer that makes it different than any other world religions prayer. And we'll see why this is so important. And this is what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 6. This is the distinction he's teaching his disciples. This experiential definition of prayer, we'll come back to Matthew chapter 6 and see that Jesus is teaching this as well. So this is, where we're, this is our jumping off point, our starting point for the definition of experiential prayer. This is the text of our study, after all. Going back to verse 6. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father, which is in secret. Now that's strange. Why would we pray in secret to an invisible God? Isn't prayer like a fundamental part of organized religion? That's the thing, though. Other organized religions have forms of prayer, rituals, but the heart of prayer, the heart of the believer, is what's emphasized here. We'll look at this more clearly in a bit. But we see by this teaching the Lord requires a heart of humility in prayer. Not of haughtiness, not of pride, not of one who seeks to perform before men, but one of sincere humility before the Lord. This isn't just taught here, though, by the Lord Jesus. This is taught throughout the whole scriptures. I'm going to turn over to 1 Samuel. You can turn there if you'd like. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. And what's the context here? Well, Saul has just become king, and this is the Lord's first mission given for him. He's to eradicate the Amalekites, to obliterate all of them. But what's going on here? We see that Saul disobeyed the Lord in this. And when pressed by Samuel the prophet to give an answer for his disobedience, he gives this excuse of piety to justify himself in keeping alive the best herds and the best flocks for himself. In addition to that, the king of Agag, he didn't kill him. So what does God tell Saul through Samuel the prophet? Verse 22. And Samuel said, 
Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. So this is what the Lord is getting at. Yes, at the time, sacrifices given to the Lord were a good thing. But that wasn't what the Lord commanded Saul at that specific instance. Clever disguises, disguised as piety, are condemned by God. We see this also in the Psalms. I'm going to turn to Psalms chapter 50, verse 13. Psalms 50, verse 13. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. We see the Lord desires genuine worship from his people. We're to, in this example, we're to call out unto him of a sincere heart, truly willing to be saved by him, not of some superficial reason, not some hypocritical reason, but of a true desire to be saved. That is what the Lord sees as genuine worship. I'm going to turn back to Matthew chapter 6, our text today. Very clearly, as we read, that we're, he, Jesus emphasizes praying secretly, going to a prayer closet as such, to pray to thy Father, which is in secret. This is in stark contrast to the context here. We see this being the reason that he gives this secret prayer, that the hypocrites pray before men, that the heathens pray vainly and repeatedly. And in a minute after this, after we've established this, I'm going to come back to that and look at vain prayer specifically. But this is in stark contrast, indeed, to why, into how the, the heathen pray, and that's what we looked at. In concluding our definition of experiential Christian prayer, we're given an illustration of what this looks like in reality. So I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 18, verse 9. So this is the clear, crystal clear example of what this teaching is, that God desires a true heart of repentance. God re re uh, requires a humble heart of sincere prayer unto God. 18 verse 9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So that illustration perfectly encompasses what we're looking at here. 
This is the Lord's consistent teaching throughout the scriptures that he requires a heart of genuine, sincere repentance before the Lord and a sincere attitude of desiring what the Lord has to give. We see this similarly in the Psalms. David offered up his heart in humility to the Lord. He says this in Psalms 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. So this is what the Lord requires, a humble, a contrite heart, one who doesn't see himself as worth anything. Because we're not. God is the ultimate source of all good. And so we come to him humbly. And this is the true experiential definition of Christian prayer. Having established that definition as our base, as our working ground for this moving forward, we're going to look at an objection, which strangely enough comes up. This objection is this, why pray when God knows already and has decreed all that has come to pass? As Reformed believers, this is something worth thinking through, that we know that God has decreed all things from eternity. And if he's going to do things anyway, why would we pray to him? And especially to other Christians who have not acknowledged the sovereignty of God, they give credence to the fact that he knows everything already. And they take the scripture that we're looking at, Jesus' definition of why we should pray in the way that he offered the Lord's Prayer, because he knows everything that we desire. He knows our desires before we even ask. So since this is a reason given by the Lord, we would do well to understand it. First, we have to understand and to know that the teaching of the Bible is that God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. As a result, looking at this great and glorious God that we have, the matter of prayer is not to be understood as something ordained by God for himself. He ordained it for us, his people. It's nothing that changes his will. It's nothing that affects his plan but it's given to us to participate as a method of sanctification. This is the benefit of prayer to us. We see this in our own lives. When we pray to the Lord, we become close to Him. Relationally, it's strange, but we come close to God in our relationship with Him. And there are benefits to prayer. We see this in our own lives. A willing submission to the will of God gives us rest. We rest in a sovereign and a holy God who has already decreed everything. It doesn't depend on us. And when you get caught up with the worries of this life, understand that God is sovereign. That relieves the weight of burden from your heart. I've often mentioned, I don't understand how professing Christians who don't believe in the sovereignty of God can even survive. What are we trying to do here? Are we trying to keep the world up ourselves? Are we trying to save people? Are we trying to keep up our own salvation? What a burden is that? I would never want that burden. And so it's a rest for my soul to bring that to the Lord, to bring that burden to the Lord. And what happens when we do that? This humble submission to the will of God moderates our dependence on earthly matters. It alleviates us from concerns regarding the world, regarding Worldly matters, 
as the old hymn goes, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Spend time in the Word. Spend time in prayer. Lift your cares up to God. It alleviates that burden. And finally, a benefit in line with these two points. Prayer is an avenue by which God has ordained that we can lament to God, express our desires for justice when we've been sinned against, when others have been sinned against, and to plead with the Lord from his word to prevail in the hearts of men. So this is the source by which we come to the Lord for the salvation of others, for we cannot effect it of ourselves. And so when we have these relationships with people that we truly desire, that people would acknowledge the truth of Scripture and come to the word of God, it is not of ourselves that will affect that, but only God. And so that's the reason why we can come to him in prayer, because he is the only one who can do anything about it. Again, we're given the Psalms as our prayer book, in a sense, that this is vo- uh, validating our coming to the Lord in prayer in these ways. He's giving us expression to our feelings as humans, in a sense, venting to the Lord our cares, and it says to cast our cares upon him. Secondly, in addressing the objection, why would we pray at all when God knows everything and has decreed all things and all ends and purposes that he has for the world? This idea of a means being ordained by God to his specified end is not foreign to scripture. We don't need to, we're not only applying it to prayer, we see it in other things as well. We see it in preaching as the means of conversion. God ordained the fact of preaching the word of God to be the salvation of men. We see this not only in the Great Commission, that Jesus commanded his disciples to what? Go out into all the world, proclaiming the truth of his word, making disciples, baptizing them. But especially in Romans 10, we get this uh, list laid out in order that these things happen, ordained by God. The unbeliever cannot believe unless they hear, and they can't hear unless they're told, and they can't be told unless a preacher is sent to tell them the good news of the gospel. This is God's ordained means of salvation. He could have done it any way he wanted. He could have snapped his fingers and voila, everything's fixed. We're all saved and everything's better. But that's not how it works. That's not how he designed it. And we'll see why in a minute. We can also look at the Lord's Prayer as a means, or I mean the Lord's Supper as a means of grace. It is a strength to our faith, and baptism as well testifies to the truth of God's work in our lives. We look back at what the Lord has done for us. He died on the cross, He rose from the dead, and has brought us to new life in Him. That's not simple remembrances. Yes, it is that, but it's also a means of grace to our salvation, to our sanctification, that we would be edified, strengthened in the faith. We don't look at these as mere rituals. That's what the world does. The world looks at their... Uh, repetitious prayers, uh, all of these things as rituals, things to please God in some way. We don't look at them as rituals. We look at them as something that God has given us as his people to be sanctified in the faith. And again, a very real means of grace is the fellowship of the saints. We see the sharpening one another, bringing up one another in the faith, persevering to the end. Yes, we can do it alone. Yes, the Spirit of God is sufficient. But we may fall away. It is encouraging to be with one another, to come together, to see how our week is doing, how, ask how we can pray for one another in our sins and struggles. And that is a means by which we can persevere to the end. So this 
means ordained by God to a greater end is not foreign to Scripture, and thus we, are, we see it is even applied to prayer. For the specific matter of prayer, the Lord teaches that by prayer, the people of God participate in the ultimate end goal of bringing about his redemptive plan in history for the greater end for which it was designed, God's glory. Let me read this again. Make sure we've got it. The Lord teaches that by prayer, the people of God participate in the ultimate end goal of bringing about his redemptive plan in history for the greater end to which it was designed, God's glory. Now, in case you heard that word participate and, and are jumping to the conclusion that I just turned Arminian, let me clarify, I'm not talking about salvation. There's two categories here. God is clearly, biblically, the initiator of salvation. Step one to the end. Every single step in between. Salvation is a big word here. A monergistic work. A work solely by which God brings these things about. We look at the definition of monergism. Apparently it's strictly a theological term. I couldn't find any other reason it's used. It says this, The theological doctrine that regeneration, salvation is exclusively the work of the Holy Spirit. So we've got that squared away, right? We're not talking about salvation here. However, the scriptures do teach the present reality that we are called to fight the good fight of faith, to press toward the mark of the high calling of God, to pursue peace with all men and holiness, without which we will not see the Lord. We've been learning this in Hebrews. We saw this very clearly in 2 Timothy. We are to do these things. We participate in affecting our own sanctification. This working towards sanctification is synergistic. Another big word by which we cooperate with God. Yes, we can't do it without him, but we cooperate with God in seeking to grow in holiness. So synergism is another big word. Let's look at it. This is a a word that is used other places in theology. The interaction or cooperation of two or more organizations, substances, or other agents to what? Produce a combined effect greater than the sum of their separate effects. So we can apply that to prayer and sanctification. That we cooperate with God to bring about his ultimate end for the greater glory of God. Greater than he could, than it would have been if he had just made everything magically better. Better than if we had the power to to affect it in and of ourselves. But together, they bring about the greater end, which is the glory of God. Now, if you're like me, uh, looking at this definition, it grates against everything we've been taught. As far as we've made the definition that it's not salvation, it's still hard to acknowledge. However, we can realize that yes. All things are a work of God and initiated by Him. But God ordained the means by which those things come about. And these means are the biblical means of grace by which we persevere to the end, that we cooperate with God in bringing these ends about. So what do we see here? These means of grace given by God to His church are His invitation to us as His people to participate in the redemptive plan like we mentioned, culminating in the greater glory of God. 
We see this specifically applied to, applied to prayer, even in the scriptures. James 5, verse 16 says this, Confess your faults to one another. Pray for one another, another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That means it does something. Even acknowledging that in the scriptures. Maybe an illustration would help. Make it more clear. Take, for example, a father. He's decided to go out and cut a tree down to warm his house. This is his objective, to warm the house. The means by which he's going to do that is chopping down the tree. This is, warming the house is his end goal. That's what he's doing. That's his in, he's initiating the steps to get this done. As the father walks out to the woods to chop down a tree, find his axe, and get this all done, he passes his five-year-old son on the way, playing with his toys in the corner. What does his father do? He invites his son to come with him to participate in getting this done, to participate in the steps by which the end goal of warming the house would be accomplished. Now his son, who dearly loves his father and honestly wants to do anything that his father does, jumps up, gets ready, and goes with him outside. The thing is, what do we see here? The father could do all the work himself. He's certainly strong enough. He's skilled enough. And he's honestly more efficient by himself. <laughs> but sincerely, simply, out of love for his son, he invites him to come participate. Coming at it from this perspective of the five-year-old. He could certainly decline the invitation. After all, he says in his head, my father doesn't, doesn't need my help. And he's definitely planning to do it whether I help him or not. But denying the invitation to participate in the father's goal defeats the whole purpose of the invitation. It wasn't because the father needed help. That wasn't why he invited him. It's not even because the son can helpfully contribute to getting it done. But it's simply because the father loves him and wants to involve his son in his plans. Now, theologically, what does that look like? As we're trying to establish, prayer is a way by which God ordained for his people out of love for them. He picked specifically that avenue that they would be able to participate in that ultimate end goal. Now, obviously, the analogy breaks down because it's a man and his son. But we see the principle here that God inviting his son, his people, to participate in the end for which he has ordained brings about the greater end of his glory. Jumping back to the illustration, what if we were to look across the street at the neighbor sitting at his kitchen window, looking out and seeing the son trudging along behind his father, trying desperately to keep up with this heavy axe behind him? What does he say to his wife sitting across the room? That boy has a loving father. That's the whole purpose. That's why we see God inviting us to participate in his plan. Yes, the man could have looked across the street and saw the man just getting the work done, chopping down that tree himself, and maybe he would have admired his strength. 
But what aspect does God get at? What is he trying to achieve here? Especially to his people. He's trying to establish that God loves us. And this is the greater end that God accomplishes in working out his redemptive plan of history, using the prayers of his people, and participating in that plan. Having resolved the objections to prayer, now we must turn again to vain prayer. For this is the context by which God, by which Jesus was teaching the disciples to do this thing, to do this right prayer in contrast to vain prayer. So first we'll look at his contrast to the hypocrites who pray before men for approval. Praying for approval from the approval of men is what? A hypocritical motive driven from pride and selfish desire. In doing so, we all fall prey to this, that we are trying to exalt ourselves before men with a facade of false piety rather than sincerely exalting God for his grace in our lives. And this sincere prayer is an edification to the brethren. This false prayer for the approval of men doesn't edify anybody except your self-ego, which needs to die. According to the biblical definition of prayer that we've established, vain prayer in the eyes before men is easily dismantled. For the scripture bears witness that God hears not the prayers of the proud. Pride is the antithesis of a humble and a contrite heart that God requires in prayer. We see this clearly in James 4. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. So what is the solution to vain prayer, to the pride of prayer? A humble heart. But how does he get at that? He points to the fact that praying in secret cultivates this humble prayer. Praying in secret isn't a direct command of God. But taking time to pray in secret develops the sincere expression of your heart before the Lord. When we take time to develop that, it will naturally overflow into your public prayers so that you have a sincere heart before the Lord no matter where you are. For that is the reason Jesus points out this praying in secret. Secondly, he tells the disciples to reject vain repetitions and babblings in prayer. He would have been addressing approaches to prayer that the disciples were familiar with in their day. And as we took a cursory glance at what the definition of prayer is to world religions, we can, after establishing the points that it classify as vain before the Lord, we'll look at them again a little bit more in depth of what their vain prayer is. So William Perkins here offers a good description of what vain prayer is. He says this, First, they thought that God was like an earthly man who might be instructed and persuaded by words. Second, they denied God's providence and were not persuaded that God saw them or regarded their estate. And therefore, they used many words to acquaint him therewith. Third, they thought by force of words to prevail with God. So the three distinctions Perkins here often offers as what Christ is qualifying as vain prayers 
is thinking that God is a man who needs to be persuaded, assuming that God was ignorant of their, con- their condition, and by thinking that offering many words, they would gain God's favor. So a quick glance back again at those world religions, and all of this stuff, even before what we're going to see now, is from their own sources. It's not simply Wikipedia that could be construed, but it is from their own sources. So Islam emphasizes ritualistic prayers. You can find their Arabic prayers for the purpose they mentioned so that all Muslims around the world would be able to pray the same thing. They repeat themselves. They focus on repetition. They have five times a day appointed for prayer. And not only that, but they, of course, have personal prayers. Catholicism, very ritualistic. They have ritualistic prayers. You can find a lot of their prayers online. They have prayers to Mary, prayers to God, prayers to Jesus, prayers to the saints, prayers that specifically specifically have certain words. They also have repetition. And what they call the rosary, they have more than 50 times the same prayer. They have appointed hours of prayer, eight hours a day, apparently. I didn't know that. And in addition to, you know, different holidays and such. Judaism, similar thing. They have ritualistic prayers. You can find their Hebrew words and prayer books online. They, they repeat things quite often. Reciting, chanting, or singing texts and appointed hours of prayer three times a day, apparently, in addition to Sabbath and holidays, in addition to personal prayer. Hinduism, the less formalized religion, so it has ritualistic prayers as well. They use mantras. They repeat these over and over, often with prayer beads. I didn't even know that. In addition to personal prayers or meditation. Buddhism as well, last one, emphasizes ritualistic prayers. They have meditations and vows, and they repeat recitations and mantras and whatever visualization practices are. And they, this is an actual quote from what they said. Repeating prayers is said to cleanse the mind and boost good energy. Whatever that means. But here we see the repeating of prayers is an emphasis in their religion. So if it isn't clear already, the religions of the world are offering vain prayers. They're repeating things because they hope that God hears them. They repeat things to encourage themselves. They repeat things and have specific words for vain practices. And to their credit, well, I don't even know where I was going with that. Now, it's very easy for us as Christians to condemn other religions for their vain worship. It's super obvious. You know, they're worshiping false gods. It's easy to see their vain worship. But the context isn't condemning the heathens in this passage. The context is warning believers. He's warning the disciples in, to be aware of what they're praying, to not, prayer vain, to not pray vainly before the Lord. So, in order of this text... I want to offer an exhortation for the prayer of the life of the believer because prayer is indeed a sober issue not to be taken lightly. One, we're to cultivate sincere and frequent prayer in our lives. Not only are we commanded to pray without ceasing, it's obvious in scripture, it's a text that's brought up quite frequently so most of you know it already, but there are spiritual consequences when we neglect God's ordained means in our lives. Striving to persevere into the end is work for the believer. It's hard. 
We're called to it, but it's hard. We know this is true not only from the scriptures, as we've been learning in Hebrews. Why are we given ways to persevere to the end if it wasn't hard? But we also see that from experience in our own lives. And this is what Hebrews 6, 11 through 12 says in talking about this. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So even these words diligence and don't be slothful point to the fact that it is work that we're to do, to be diligent, to be consistent in these things. But why is this diligence so strongly emphasized throughout the scriptures, especially regarding the means of grace? As we studied through Hebrews 6, in the beginning of the chapter, what is the writer warning against? Apostasy. Now, yes, he's in the context of those who are denying another gospel, but we can look at what apostasy looks like. We can look at what the writer of Hebrews iterates falling away from the faith as, like in Hebrews 6, sorry, I missed this part. In Hebrews 6, like we were looking at, he's, avoid, he's exhorting us to avoid apostasy. But what are the descriptions of an apostate? He says this, It is impossible that they shall, what? Fall away to renew them again unto repentance. So this is the description of an apostate who fell away from the faith. Falling away from the faith is described in more detail in Hebrews 3, verse 12. He says this, Take heed, brethren, that there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So this is what falling away from the faith looks like. This is what an apostate is. And in looking at the exhortations to the believer to avoid apostasy, to be diligent to cultivate the means of grace, we must apply it to prayer. It's not hard to think that neglect of sincere prayer to God would lead to a heart of unbelief, leading to departing away from the living God and thereby falling away from the faith. It's not hard to imagine this. We see this similar truth mirrored in human relationships. Marriage is a big one. Looking at the married couples out here, you know that communication is vital to developing your relationship. Even friendships. There's no friendship without communication. That's the vital aspect of human relationships. Married couples, again, if your spouse drifts away from communicating with you, you are rightly concerned, right? That throws up a red flag. What's going on here? This is what we experience when we drift away from God in prayer. Not only does it lead to a weakening of our relationship with God, but it weakens our faith in temptation. It opens us up to the wiles of the devil. When we are off our guard, when we're not paying attention, and we're not in a close relationship with the Lord. And the devil seeks to draw away what? Even the elect, if possible. So he's trying to get you. You're not immune to the devil's wiles as a believer. J.C. Ryle offered a pointed exhortation in an article called Prayerless or Prayerful. He said this, Prayer is that point 
of all others in religion, at which you must be on your guard. Tell me what a man's prayers are, and I will soon tell you the state of his soul. Prayer is a spiritual pulse. By this, the spiritual health may always be tested. Brother, sister in the faith, how does your spiritual health register on the test of prayer? We must examine ourselves. How strong is your spiritual pulse? We must seriously assess the importance of prayer and the priority of prayer in our relationship with God in our spiritual lives. This is a serious issue. I hope I've laid this out well. I pray the Lord would use it in your own heart. But we are not without hope, for the scripture offers the remedy. And I'll end with this. 2 Peter 3, verse 17 through 18 says this, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So studying the scriptures, coming back again to the word of God, cultivating a life of prayer in our own lives, and seeking a close relationship with the Lord is the means by which we avoid apostasy. Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you this morning. We thank you for the truths of your word. We pray that you would prick our conscience, Lord, in areas that it needs to be pricked. We pray that you would help us to cultivate our desire to have a close relationship with you. Not only that we would know you more, but that we would stay away from temptation, that, that we would be diligent against temptation in the wiles of the devil. For this will bring about our downfall if we let down our guard. I pray, Lord, that you would sanctify us, continue to strengthen us in your word, and be with us as we go from here. In the name of Jesus, our mediator, we pray. Amen.